Welcome to episode 44 of the Telenopoly podcast, how to roll your own cloud services for maximum privacy. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and I am joined by Brandon Corbin. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and our guests on this episode are, is Edward Brud. Hello. And Jacob West. Hello. And yes, we do have two guests. This is going to be our first panel discussion on the podcast. Looking forward to this. But before we get into it, Let's talk quickly about the Talentopoly job board, which makes all this possible. You can find it at talentopoly.com jobs. We've got some jobs on here from Interactive Intelligence, and we have one from Exact Target. And there are some great things on here for senior C++ software engineers. We've got an interaction attendant. If you're interested, like I was, and what the heck that means, go check out the job board and, and find out. And then we also have a cloud-based solution engineer at Interactive Intelligence job on there. So there's some cool stuff. The Interaction Attendant job is remote, so you can work that from anywhere. Check it out. Now, on with the podcast and beverages. Brandon, what are you drinking? Oh, shit. I am drinking Francis uh, Coppola. And it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. I've had it before. It's, uh, it's, it's actually a really good wine. And it's like 14 bucks. Um, yeah, that's what I'm drinking. Nice. And should we do the Brandon point scale? We haven't done that in a few. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so starting off, I would give it a six. Okay. I don't. So think it we've might ever it really might be like back, a, have we? No, we no. Back at the end of an episode. No, because usually, well, I think let's we just have. Jump one. to the end. Let's pretend we're at the end. Now, give it your end score. A fourteen. Wow. Out of ten. <laughs> Which means because I won't be able model. to feel my feet exactly. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Brandon, I mean, uh, Jake, what are you drinking? Let's see here. Batch 19, pre-prohibition style lager. Oh, you copycat. How did you know? That's what I'm drinking, too. <laughs> Provided by <laughs> the host. <laughs> this is interesting stuff, though. It's pre-prohibition style lager, whatever that means. Uh, so I looked into this before the podcast, and it, according to the marketing on their website, they found a pre-prohibition recipe in the like dungeon of this brewery from 1919 and they started brewing this up and it, it was pretty tasty so it's Coors Brewing Company actually makes this so I don't really buy any of this whole marketing spiel I think it's all completely made up but it's a tasty beer alright Ed what are you drinking sir I'm drinking the mighty tap water the mighty tap water does that build character <laughs> No, it builds hair on your chest. <laughs> Depending some on calcium the city you live in. <laughs> it's some well, calcium yeah. buildup. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let's jump right into our topic then. I think a good place to start out is uh, to discuss why would, why would somebody be interested? What are the advantages of rolling your own cloud services? Why would you want to stop using the Dropbox, Flickr, Google Docs? Gmail. Why stop using these things? Have you guys ever thought about stopping your use of this? Yes. Well, Brandon, enlighten us. 
I, uh, so basically the, the current ruling, um, is that it, the government can get into anything that you store in the cloud that you basically do not own it. Um, and now everybody, when you talk about it, people are going to be like, eh, I have nothing to hide from. I have nothing, you know, I'm not doing anything sketchy or whatnot, but that's a load of shit. And it's a, it's an excuse, but basically, yeah, at this point, the government does not give a shit who, where, you know, where, if it's, if it's not hosted in your environment, then they have a full right to it without, you know, uh, uh, any kind of of due process right and gmail tries to, i mean google especially absolutely gmail proper, they try to be good about it but you yep. know at the end of the day if they're being compelled to turn over information they're going to turn it over Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's my biggest concern, or that's one of my concerns. But the other is just that it's no longer ours. Like we don't have any real connection to the digital stuff that we're, you know, we're just throwing it up there. I mean, but it's so convenient and it's cheap. And so it is that fine balance. So I think, you know, for me, it's, it's trying to find a happy medium. And oftentimes you can't always get all of that data back out of their system. Yeah, exactly. Now, the, uh, Google again. Google's trying. You know, they got the data liberation group that's within there that goes around to each of the departments and tries to figure out a way of, of making it so you can get your data. You know, they're standing up against the UN. They're doing they're doing the right stuff, but it's still, you know, it still scares me to to hear. Oh well, you know, the government very well can have a back you know uh, a back door to any of the email services to you know any of that stuff. And if I'm sitting here saying you know the government sucks right now, um, then then yeah, I, I do have. Of you know uh, hesitation about it. Storage is another thing. I mean, all of these things usually come with some amount of free storage, but then you have to pay to up it. Mm -hmm. And if you're storing, you know, if you're using this as a heavy user, you're almost guaranteed to have to pay some amount of money. You're gonna you're gonna overuse. You're gonna use beyond the free. Agreed. So, how, like, uh, so do you use your own email server then, Brandon? No, of course not. Come on. I remember no. you talking about it. <laughs> yeah, no, so it, right? I did. I've I've thought about it and I've been, you know, on and off playing around with different kinds of setups. Um I do have my own email server, but I don't really use it. I still rely on Gmail. Uh and you know, I still use Dropbox. I still, you know, use use Amazon. I mean, I you know, I am definitely a con a, a consumer of the cloud. Um but ideally I would like to be able to free myself from it at at some point. So Excellent. Yeah, one of the things, I'll bring up this when we talk about pros and cons too, but one of the things I've read about is, it's unfortunate, but some dad will set his son up with a Gmail account, and his son is emailing back and forth with his you know, other family members, grandma, whatever, and has all of his emails in this Gmail account, and maybe the kid's eight years old, and they, by law, Google's not allowed to let anybody under 13, I believe it is, use their services. So this kid you know, is illegally using the Gmail service. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't seem that, like it's that big of a deal. But the real sad thing is that when Gmail, if they find out, then they will shut him out of that Gmail account permanently. He will not have access. They, they don't even let you download all those emails and go away with them. You just lose them. They're gone. Yeah, see, that's ridiculous. That's yep. stupid. Kids kids have the shit end of the stick right now, and it's, it is. It's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> Well, if they can do that to the eight-year-old, they can pretty much do it to anybody. If there's, you know, if you somehow violate their terms of service or whatever, they mm -hmm. could just shut you out and they could just get rid of all your data and that's it. And there's no recourse that you could take. Absolutely. So this will give you total control if that's what you want. Which Actually, I was um, reading this thing a couple weeks ago about 
this website talking about the terms of service of various cloud companies of what happens after your family member dies and how do you get that data out. And you should check with what they actually do. And some sites, well, they'll delete it for you. Some will let you download it. Other ones will memorialize your Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. I wonder now, what the process is, though, to get their Gmail emails if you wanted that or something. It's probably a, not a fun process. Oh, hey, can I tell you what I what my what my process is when I die? Yeah, I've got I've I've got this all friggin' figured out. It's actually kind of cool, <laughs> uh, and 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 don't ask me why I put so much thought into it. Right, I was I had a dark past, but um, <laughs> the uh, uh, so what happens is if I die, my buddy in, in Colorado opens up an envelope, and it's got a single password that he sends to my wife, hey, and my already, wife. Does he already have this envelope? Yes, he he already has the envelope. And, and, and my wife then has a URL that she goes to that she puts in the password and blah, 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 blah. Here's, you know, here's access. Here's all the information. Here's everything that I want to see happen. Uh, but here's also my password uh, for one password and last pass. So this should get you to absolute everything that you need. And I just go and I update it as, you know, the years go on and I don't die. Um, and and I, it's, it's, it's it, I, so far, I, I'm, unfortunately, I won't know if it like it was a complete success or not because I'll be dead. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be like the best way I've been able to figure out how to do it without giving uh, access to absolutely everything. So like my buddy's got a password, but it means nothing to him. And and my wife has a website that means nothing to her until she has the password. Unless they work together and then I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if now, there's any services out there to do this sort of thing. That's there great. there are. Because I um when I die dot com was a domain that I had like a long time ago. <laughs> and and that was the whole premise of the service was you set up ten people that you notify or that get notified and with a custom message and what would happen is it'd ping you every week and then a few days later if it didn't hear back from you uh, you would get pinged once more, and then boom, it would go and it would send it off. Um, yeah, people don't like to spend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it could connect it to the cloud too. So um, then we can notify insurance companies, all that shit. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, pretty clever. I like it. All right, so where were we before we got onto yeah. the path of what happens when Brandon dies? <laughs> I think let's let's talk about the pros and cons of rolling your own cloud services. So the goal here, by the way, we're going to talk about a bunch of different uh, options, different offerings, software, services, things you can install. But the goal here is to emulate these convenient online services like Dropbox. Not simply just set up an FTP server. Obviously, you can do that to just share files. But you want the convenience of that automatic sync happening on your desktop to some other computer, you know, without you having to manually do these things. Because that's that convenience is really why you gravitate towards these types of cloud services. So can we keep the convenience, but also have our privacy by storing all of this stuff ourselves and controlling it? That's what we're going to explore tonight. So what are some of the pros and cons that you guys could foresee even before we jump into the, these exact offerings? Why would you, like, why have you not set up your own email server yet? What are some of the cons involved with that? 
uh, well, unfortunately, without getting into this list, which kind of nails so much of them, um, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is. It's it's a pain in the ass to set up, especially email. Um, if you don't have if you don't have a dedicated IP, you're going to have a bad time. Um, you know that those are some of the things that I just ran into setting things up, where it's like, oh, hey, look, it's all functioning, but no email provider is going to take a single email that I send out of it. I could get them fine, right. You know, so that's that was one of my reasons that I ended up just kind of, OK, I'm going to push this off. And now that I'm reading, you know, this stuff that's in this list, it's like, well, OK, here's the reason why it doesn't work, you dumbass. Well, yeah. And before we even jump into some of the, it's pretty technical. And I got that off of a very interesting Slashdot uh, conversation where people were talking through why you and it, it was pretty resoundingly like a no, do not roll your own hosted email service but, uh, but couldn't could, uh, let me i'm uh, sorry to interrupt but couldn't you couldn't you if you would offer a service like this where you would basically you you need someone who would allow you to uh, use their uh, smtp server would, would that not kind of if so you, you basically have all your incoming you know handle local and all that but then the sending piece couldn't somebody just say okay we're going to set up a service we're going to allow you to use the smtp you're going to pay for it would that not work yes it would okay but and, and are there people that do, do that? that? Well, okay. I'm, there are companies that do that. My dad is actually using one that that's not their primary purpose, but through the services they provide, they provide that feature indirectly. And it's okay. called Reflection, and it's more for secure email and, and other stuff like that for HIPAA compliance and all that loveliness. But you basically send all your mail out through their servers, and all the mail comes in through their servers and gets filtered and everything else, and then dropped into your mail server. Yeah. Oh, how okay. do you know that they're not retaining those emails in some to some degree in a cache well, or something? That's actually one of the features of the service is that you can have it retain all the emails, which or, some businesses have to do. So, but if you and, don't want them to retain any at all, they could probably do that too. Well, you don't pay for that service, but <laughs> it's still it's not cheap. I wouldn't use it, but my dad's a reseller for it, so I'm avoiding him putting it on my domain. <laughs> Well, you, you, how do you do your email? Uh, well, my dad has a business cable connection, so we have five static IP addresses. So, therefore, the static IP address problem is not an issue. And then we just tell Comcast to go and set up the reverse DNS correctly so that when mail comes from us, it doesn't look like this funky little random, you know, IP address filtered name on there. So, therefore, it comes back with a nice, clean reverse lookup so we don't get banned as being spam. Right. And we've been doing that for well, since 2004. So, and do you use domain keys? I currently actually don't use domain keys yet. Really? I've actually been debating on actually getting that set up on there sometime. I wanted Just, to kill myself trying to get the PKI and the dom yeah and the domain keys set up. That was that was not an enjoyable experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ed, Ed likes to read the uh, spec on the FTP on FT protocol uh, in his spare time. So setting up domain <laughs> keys may not be that bad, right? No. I, yeah, I, I implemented my own FTP server, reading through these 69 pages of the RFC. And through that process and all the updated RFCs, I don't ever want to use FTP ever again because that <laughs> is the most insecure protocol on the face of the planet. <laughs> so what... <laughs> What about using Zimbra for your email server? <clears throat> have you guys used Zimbra before? Have you used it before, Jake? No. I, I have set up test copies of Zimbra for my dad to show off to companies who wanted a all-encompassing collaboration suite because Zimbra is not email. It's 
email, calendar, contacts, chat, the whole bundle, document yeah, stories. The whole, the whole suite. So yeah. Just, yeah, I just okay. use Postfix and Cirrus <laughs> and done. <All> right. <laughs> I that was uh, Zimbra was going to be the tool that I was using um, as I was going through that process, and I did get it all set up for my Corbin dot at account. Um, you know, the one thing that really freaked me out the most about it was that the admins can uh, read everybody's emails. Huh. I mean, like no passwords needed, no not resetting passwords. You know, where okay, now I can get into their account. Just literally click here and view the mailbox. <laughs> And that freaked me out because I, you know, again, it's like uh, that. That doesn't seem like a really good idea, um, and and I couldn't find any uh, any way around it other than going in and modifying the source, obviously. Right, and so you were going to set it up as a family domain and get yeah, your whole yeah. family using it, and get everybody using it. But then, as like you know, really, do I want to? Here, Emily, here's your email, and no, I promise I won't look in it. Right now, I don't have that restraint. I would be going through her email and being like, oh, what's she up to, right? And then let this whole paranoia thing hit. It's, it's, it would be ridiculous. That would be bad news. So, so your main reason for not setting up your own email server is to protect you from yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> see, I don't really look at anybody's email unless someone tells me to. And I've got them on the phone. And they say, can you see if this is there? I'm like, yes, you did receive that email. Yeah, but but your wife see the the like I wouldn't read you know if I had Jared's email I don't get, I don't care what Jared's doing but my wife so <laughs> dude my yeah well and yeah my wife I'd just be waiting I'd just be waiting I'm like I know she's gonna do something then I'm gonna be able to be like yeah you're a dirty person you know but it, it would <laughs> never happen it's gonna be emailing <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm I'm just convinced that one day I'll find out that my wife isn't the prude that she is uh, <laughs> all right how about so how do you stay off of spam lists, Ed? Like, what is that process like? Do you do you proactively track whether you're on any spam lists, or what do you do? I mean, there are a couple websites I hit every so often that, that you can go through and check to see if your IP addresses have hit the actual RBLs or other stuff like that. Um, Cisco actually has a service. You can go up there and just browse and type your IP address, and they'll actually give you some scores about your activity from your IPs and everything else through all the services they provide out in the world and everything else. And I've used those to go and say, oh, hey, we apparently are on there. And so I, most of the time I just do it reactively because most of the time there isn't much issue and there's only like six or seven people using the email server. So there's a little more than that now, but still, it's like a dozen people. So not a huge amount of issues. The last time we actually had any issue is because people had really bad passwords. Really bad passwords. <laughs> and so apparently someone had hacked into one of the accounts and was sending meow as that account. So I'm like, and because of the way the current thing is set up, I can actually access everybody's password. So I went through and did that. Oh, whoa, wow. That sucks. So you actually could get in and see all their passwords? Currently, yes. They <laughs> but I went through and said, okay, you people need to change your password because it's really bad. But these yeah. are family members, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, trust it's you know, my parents and my sister and my brother and my aunts <laughs> and uncles. And I mean, it's like eh. Uncle Johnny sending pictures of his balls again. <laughs> but other than that, I just stay out of it. <laughs> I don't do anything with it unless it says, hey, we're getting problems in sending email. And, you know, most of the time it's a false positive. It's because, well, Cynthia, you're not supposed to stop using Yahoo groups. Yahoo groups has issues. Just don't use it anymore. <laughs> 
Well, I'm surprised you don't have more trouble with the spam list, because the only time I ever set up an email server, it was not enjoyable from day one. And, you know, it was probably because it, I had it misconfigured that it was getting blacklisted. But the other problem that I had was just flat-out deliverability. And, you know, like, AT&T WorldNet, which I don't even know if anybody uses that anymore, but back in 2006 when I was setting up the email server, that was actually, you know, maybe 12% of users were using that. And none of the emails from this uh, email server were going to AT&T. None of them would get through. Not one. There's zero percent deliverability in that ISP, and it varied by every ISP. What What you're getting there is the fact that you're on a dial-up, and most of the RBLs will actually block dial-up addresses. Flat out. Tell Tell us what RBLs are for those. Uh, Real-time blacklist. So this is one of the spam prevention mechanisms that was created, where you would actually tell your mail server to do a DNS lookup on the IP address coming in against this host. And you say, okay, is 127 dot whatever, and you just pop the IP address in there, dot the top level or RBL, and it'll come back and either return a positive response or nothing. <clears throat> if it returns a positive response, meaning it looked up to something, which they just returned something fake, that means they're on the RBL. And you just say, okay, I'm not accepting mail from you. And like Spam House is one of the big popular ones, yep. and they have a dial-up list, which basically lists all the dial-up, dynamic cable internet, you know, the, the residential stuff, all things like that, which mail shouldn't be coming from, and just you just block all of them. Well, but my mail server was not on a dial-up. But you were on a residential class internet, correct? No, no, I wasn't. This was actually for an employer that I was working for. Because... <clears throat> mm. There's the it was part. set up in their data in their data center. Hmm. That's strange. Now the other side I of it is I think the reverse it, DNS was not configured correctly yes, on day one. For a while we didn't have an issue, and then all of a sudden we started getting on blacklists. And I looked it up, and it says, "Oh well, your reverse DNS looks like it's a dynamic range." Yes. Because it, we were on business class cable, and it reverses back to you know the. Indiana.comcast.us and you know, has all the little you know IP address in there, so it looks like a dial-up. So all we had to do was just contact Comcast and say, "Hey, can you set up reverse DNS entries for these IP addresses so that it looks normal and sane?" And then once we did that, then we got off those lists. Well, they, and they did it. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Well, it's business. Apparently, class. yeah. You, apparently, you have to be the business class for Comcast to give a shit about you. Correct. Oh, business yeah. class is entirely different service than the residential well, it's also a lot more expensive <laughs> the other thing we did at this company was we paid a service that has inboxes on all these different isps and, and mail providers like gmail and and yahoo mail and all the rest of them and you pay them like a hundred bucks or something and then they will send out through you they send you or they send us a list i think it was for us to send emails to and then they would report back how many received them so do a deliverability check. And it was surprising on a lot of services how low our deliverability was. And some of those spam lists could take 30 days to get off of, and some of them, once you're on them, you just pretty much never get off of them. Yeah, I haven't had too much difficulty. I mean, we've gone on one or two, and we got off within a couple of days, or a couple hours, usually. So where yeah. do you, where, let's talk about where you host servers. Does it make the most sense to host it in a data center always? Or is it okay to host it in your house? It depends on if you want to be cheap and have more control. I mean, we host it in our house, literally. It's in my dad's house, in the garage. 
So, I mean... How do you do backups? Are you doing off-site backups? Uh, yes, we're using rsync.net to do all our backups. What about power failure? Um, he's got big mother stinking UPSs. <laughs> so we got a lot of APC backup units hooked up to that thing. Like so several yeah. hours worth? Yeah. Otherwise, if it goes out and you just, you know, the power eventually goes out, which has happened sometimes recently with all the weird weather patterns. But, you know, it just goes down for a couple hours. Yeah. And then people I mean, just have to know to resend their email. Well, usually we have a wheel. We had a backup MX for a while with one of my friends who had a co-load server somewhere on the other side of the U.S. But uh, once I get established in the new house Saturday, I'll be setting up my location as the backup. So therefore, okay. we'll just back up each other. Nice. So therefore, if his server's down, and all the mail will just direct to me, and then once it comes back online, I'll forward it over to him, to the main server again. So I, I think basically the point of all of this technical conversation is that if you're having any trouble as a listener keeping up with what Ed is saying right now, do not, do not go into the business of hosting your own email service. Yes. If, everything, if everything Ed is saying right now sounds simple to you and, oh, that makes sense, then you're probably ready to host your own email service. Yeah, and and one thing advantage of me is that I've been doing it for 15 years. So <clears throat> I set up my own server just for the fun of it, just because I didn't – Got, I was flipping email clients left and right because I couldn't find what I liked. So I said, ooh, IMAP's nice. So I set up my own IMAP server to shovel my mail on so I could switch email clients freely without having to worry about converting all the email to another format. So then it just sort of grew from there, and I just always run my own because I like the control. And you have every email, like, ever, right? Yes, I have all my email since 1996, okay? Just deal with it. That's awesome. And literally every – well, actually, I delete my spam. For a while, I was actually collecting my spam. I had a year and a half worth of spam collected, ordered by month. (laughs) And I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. I was like, hey, I can analyze it. And then I'm like, "Ah, that's too much work. I just deleted it all. All right, let's, we're, we're spending a lot of time on email, but I think it is the most important of all the services. Let's Now that you're mentioning spam, let's finish out that to- this topic by just talk about spam prevention and blocking and what you do to not be overrun by spam with your own service. What I do is I run AmaVisD, which is a small filtering daemon that runs in front of my mail server or is plugged into my mail server. So Postfix sends their only email to AmaVisD, AmaVisD checks it, and sends it back to Postfix. That's all it does. And all it does is it scans through viruses, and if a virus is detected, it'll just quarantine the email, and then it'll run all the other stuff through Spam Assassin. Okay. And that's, so Spam so Assassin using, is what's doing the heuristics to filter. Yeah, Spam Assassin plus DCC and Vipple's Razor and a whole bunch of other little teeny services that run underneath it. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, Spam Assassin probably runs through about 100 or 200 different checks. How, how good would you say it is? How much spam gets through? It varies on the month and what the flavor of the month is. So, I mean, lately it's not been doing, you know, there's still quite a bit coming in, but not too much. I haven't checked my percentages in a while, honestly. I mean, coming into your inbox is what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's not too I'll, bad. Well, give us an idea. Quantify it somehow. I got to go look at my thing because I don't really pay attention. <laughs> like, would you say it's maybe one or two a day? Oh, I probably get a little more than that, but not too much more. 
I may get a half a dozen or a dozen. I'll say a very big win for Gmail is that I I did actually get I had to do the report spam button today for the first time in maybe six months on Gmail. Like in six months, I hadn't gotten one piece of spam. What, Here we go. What's your experience, Jake, using Gmail? Yeah, it's about the same, but uh, I, I do get a pretty hefty amount in my spam folder. Right, but that who cares? Right, it auto deletes that. But in I your in, in your inbox, how often do you get something that you have to report as spam? Maybe once every three months tops. Yeah, yeah, I would right yeah. around there. I mean, so, so spam is just spam, gone. Huge like, collection. I live in a world of no spam. Totally no spam using Gmail. Right. I yeah, and I probably get more than that, but not too much more. And I get maybe a dozen a day. And right now, from looking at the stats through my server, it's detecting about eight percent of the total mail coming into our system as spam. Okay. And, but I know there's a couple of things. Of course, I am running on much older versions of Spam Assassin because I haven't gotten around to upgrading the server to the newest version of everything. Okay, so it could have new filters and whatnot. Yes, I'm running about a two-year-old version of Spam Assassin. Cool. So that is one thing that goes against me, is that, yeah, if you want to run your own and you want to stop spam, then you got to keep on it, like white and rice. And what, it's, what, which email clients do you guys use? Yes. <laughs> I use Apple Mail on the Mac. I use Thunderbird on the Linux box. My iPad, my iPhone. <laughs> Sometimes I use Telnet if I really feel ambitious. <laughs> I actually use Sparrow on the Mac for desktop side, and then I yep. use the Gmail webmail. That's my, my that's my trusty Gmail. Oh, I use Roundcube as my uh, webmail interface. Oh, okay, cool. What do you use? Jake? I use the Gmail interface. You don't use any other third-party client at all. No, nah, I mean unless it's a device. Yeah, yeah. I rarely use the Gmail web interface. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> well, we've already talked a lot about email, so I'll leave it to our listeners to go check out our show notes. We do have some other email servers listed in there, like Qmail and Sendmail. I put Sendmail in there just for completeness. It's not recommended. Ed could probably talk to you one-on-one if you ever want and why you should not use Sendmail. <laughs> I've gotten the lecture <laughs> before. All right, and we also have Horde. IMP, Squirrel Mail, and RoundCube. And RoundCube seems to be the favorite. That's what a lot of people like to use. It's got the prettiest interface. There is also Zimbra, which is a lot more than just email, but you can always use that. So we have that, and we also have some hosting options listed, like Linode and Slicehost, if you're looking for other ways to host your email server other than just your house, like it does. All right, let's talk about Dropbox alternatives and OwnCloud specifically. Brandon, yes, this is your your domain, so I will let you run with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So OwnCloud is a really interesting project that's coming out. Um, I It was when I was kind of in that, I don't know how long ago that was, that I was like, I'm going to build my own cloud of everything. <laughs> uh, so, you know, maybe five, six months ago. Sounds like um, such a good idea at one in the morning, doesn't it? It does. It sounds amazing. Um, but what OwnCloud is, is it is a Dropbox alternative, but it also has other features. It's a open source, uh, so you can do you know uh, different types of plugins, and it comes with calendars. It has contacts. I'm just reading from this list here that we have on here, and I sound like a total it's written, fool. But... Written in PHP. 
for those. It's written in, yeah, so it, it is a LAMP server that it sets up. Um, but what was really cool, so so you set up OwnCloud, and you can add different users. So I set my wife up, and you get a native uh, client for Mac. You can get it for Windows, and you can get it for Linux. Um, and it does exactly what Dropbox does. And and I think it is using rsync, um, but it also has WebDAV uh, enabled. So even though you you uh, the, the open source one doesn't come with like a, an iOS client or an Android client, you can just install any uh, WebDAV-based uh, uh, client on the devices and browse all your files. It, it was a really, really awesome experience. I did have a couple things screw up, you know, and, and that's bound to happen. Like the upgrading is is kind of a mess and it seems to break every time you upgrade. Um, I had a couple times where I like trying to share folders because you have sharing folders and all that kind of functionality they have with Dropbox and it like blew out my entire directory. <laughs> and then then when once it was empty on one computer, then it started sinking and just blowing out everything on every other computer. Was this recent? Um, no, this was this was when I was first doing it. So they just came out with a 4.5 version. Um, and I think I was working on maybe the 3. Um, their logo sucks, by the way. So if anybody is works at OwnCloud or is part of OwnCloud, their logo is awful. Somebody please just design them a new one. Um, but it, it really is, I think, a viable option um, to to at least start exploring the possibilities of, okay, getting away from Dropbox, getting away from some of these others. Um, so yeah, OwnCloud is definitely something to check out, in my opinion. It has, it has some nice program, like clients, too. They have a client for each of the three major OSs that is basically a Dropbox client. It will also sync your contacts and stuff down, so it does the web dev stuff that you were just talking about. And on iPhone, you can just natively pull this stuff in because iPhone supports web dev. And on Android, they have yeah. an application so that you have well, a Dropbox Well, how is it natively? What? How does it natively support WebDAV? How does iOS support You can go natively? under accounts. You go under add accounts, just like where you would go under mail and calendar and everything to add a Gmail account or something. And you can choose WebDAV. And then you type in the details of the server. And then it's going to be able to pull down the contacts and the calendar information. From oh, the, oh, the, oh, oh, okay. Your gotcha. iOS yeah. And sync it back up as well. So it's bi-directional. <clears throat> And you don't even yeah. need to download yeah. like an own cloud app to do this. It's just you can just do it from okay. the settings. It's the CalDAV piece most likely for the calendar then, yeah. Yeah, CalDAV, yep. I've been looking for something to run my own calendar so I can stop using other people's calendars. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. The interface, too. The interface is really clean. Um, they did a good job of kind of keeping it. But, again, that logo's got to go. It looks like it looks like you're taking a bubble bath. <laughs> it looks like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man that's like fallen down. <laughs> it's really horrible. Check out – click on features. Yeah. Click on the features section on yeah. SoundCloud and check out the access your data. And you're going to recognize exactly what that uh, select <laughs> element is. Yes. So they're using this. This is something Ed got me started on recently. The select two form elements. If you haven't checked these out, Brandon, check them out. They're amazing. Okay. It's select two. Just Google that, and it is really stinking nice drop downs and stuff for. Uh, it's all JavaScript powered for web apps, and it, I thought it was cool to see that they're using that here. It looks like they're probably using some bootstrapness on here as well. Would be my guess. It looks kind of bootstrappy. But yeah, and they've got popovers and stuff and some of the newer type of interface elements that you see a lot lately. It's cool stuff. Uh, but it does have a little ways yeah, to go it, because it, like pictures, the pictures area left me really wanting. Like I couldn't imagine my family really navigating around in their 
pitcher gallery. It's pretty lacking. Yeah, it, it, it's really bad. They like try to have this like stack thing going from a design metaphor, yeah. and you hover over it, and it kind of it fans out just a little. Yeah, so it's a it's a bad implementation. Yep. Uh, but again, it's all open source, um, and so you really can get in there and, and break things if you want. And it supports apps. You can actually write apps, which are just plugins. I mean, I don't know why we're so app yeah. crazy to can't yeah. call things plugins anymore, but. It has a whole plugin architecture, and there are a fair amount of plugins for it, which is pretty cool. All right, let's talk about Arrow. Oh, and yeah. the encryption piece. That's I, I like that. Um, yeah, so you, you can encrypt everything that you're saving on there. That is nice. That's very nice. So when the feds come and steal your hard drives, they still exactly. have your data. You can have my hard drives, but you can never have my data. All right, Arrow FS. Another Dropbox alternative. This one is unique in that it doesn't have a central server. So, yes. Yeah. Dude. Talk about this for a second. I, okay. I, I want to talk about this one too. So I, I started using this one about probably about a month ago. Um, and I got an invite and so I installed it and I love it. The, the, the only problem, the only problem with Arrow is that right now I have it syncing with my laptop, I have it syncing with my Linux box, and I have it syncing with my Mac Pro. That's kind of the family computer. Um, when I'm at home, all three of those computers are at my house. If my house burns down, those files are gone. Yep. Right? So that's one downside of it. Now, of course, I could set up you know a server somewhere and have it be a client and have it syncing and all that. Uh, besides that piece, uh, which is always about death, kind of bizarre um uh that uh, that i've been using it and i've been using it at work so patrick has uh, we have a shared folder and we share all of our design stuff we maybe share some movies if somebody downloads one or something like that i don't know um but what happens is as soon as i drop it into the shared folder it starts uploading and it starts downloading for him so it is really a real-time connection that's happening between these computers, and it's and it's actually really fast. Uh, so yeah, we've we've really been loving the whole the, the the whole application, and it is free right now, and you're only limited to the amount of space that you have on each of your computers. Yeah, which is really great. Uh, it encrypts end to end, but can you have it encrypt the rest file, like the files at rest? Can uh, well, no, ultimately. Don't you with Dropbox encrypt it as it's on their server? But when it comes to your computer, it has to be unencrypted. And so, yeah. since there is no central server, do you really need it encrypted? Well, the only reason I mention it is that way you could use your friend's computer as like you could say, "Hey, you use my computer as, as your offsite backup, and I'll use yours as the offsite backup." But if you're worried about him being able to see your files, you'd like them to be encrypted at rest on his computer. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great. That's a great point. Because then, if they can do that, then you have no problem doing it. You're like, oh, I'll just, you know, and the cool yeah, thing I there still is not... you could do it to like several friends. You could basically use people's computers as like your RAID configuration, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it'd, it'd be interesting if somebody builds like a service to allow it to sync to S3 or, you know, to, you know, some uh, offsite. I guess if you're doing sync a car. Glacier oh, yeah. Yeah. Gla well, but gl with Glacier, you're still doing a lot of read and writes with these things. You know, you're downloading files and whatnot. But hell, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's cool, though. That's neat that you're trying it out. It's in beta right now, so you do have to get an invite to try it, right? Yep. Yeah, and I've already given my two invites away. Yeah, but you can uh, go on there, and you can request an invite. I would imagine they probably get back to you pretty quickly, but who knows? Because it's not like they have to scale up some service of their own. Yeah. 
All right, and you had some uh, other alternatives, right, Jake, that you want to mention? Some Dropbox alternatives? Yeah, I don't really know anything about them, unfortunately, except Mediafire, which kind of puts this whole list to shame, but <clears throat> uh, whenever I want to know an alternative to something, I just wiki it. And, nice. Um, there's always a notable competitor, well, usually a notable competitor section that lists off uh, similar companies or products. And there's about 15 here, so... Now, what is Mediafire that you mentioned? I, I believe people use it to uh, pirate stuff, so... <laughs> <coughs> yeah, probably. And there's iCloud, Box.com, which is for enterprise users, Ubuntu One. It looks like a lot of them are true competitors in the fact that there are other software-as-a-service offerings for... Yeah. file backups I mean, what I usually do is I go to alternative2.com and just I've hit that, that site because yeah. that's where I pull it because I ran across this one before called SparkleShare and basically what that is is a whole series of clients that then talk to a Git server to actually store your data so you have revisions and backup and real time syncing and all that stuff and so you, you don't want to pay for a server you can just use GitHub <laughs> Well, how does Git handle, I know it can handle it, but like how, does it handle binary files well? It handles binary files. It's just, you know, you get, it's not efficient at it when you get a lot of them. Right, so that, that is, so I don't know how they're, probably what you're going to store, I would yeah, think. I don't, know. I, I don't know what they've done. They may have done some tweaks or modifications to how they host to that, but I, I haven't looked at it because I'm like, yeah, and i got to find a server with a fast connection, and my connection sucks right now, so... I really haven't looked at any of this stuff because I had a sucky connection currently. Now, next week, I'll have a really nice connection. So I'll probably be looking into these things. Well, what, what about good old R-Sync? Why not just consider R-Sync? R-Sync? Well, there's not much that does automation around. And there's some, but nothing doing it real time like all these other things are packaging up nicely. Oh, okay. But, but you if you're talking about backup, R-Sync is really good for that. And rsync.net is a really good... Yes, it's not your own, but it's a cloud company that does. They actually encourage you and will help you encrypt your files so they can't read them. And you store and the keys; they don't store them. Correct. They tell you and give you whatever you want a method you want to get the files up there. They don't care. They support a whole ton of them, and they'll work with you on it. Which and, here, a little note here: this is something Ed and I looked into recently for people that are looking at S3, and they do have an option to encrypt files on S3 at rest. And they have two ways you can go there is that you can store the keys and you can do it or they can take care of all of it and store the keys as well. But that really defeats the whole purpose of their storing the keys because then theoretically the keys, you can just safely assume the keys are probably on the same computer or right near that computer physically that is storing the encrypted file. So the keys to decrypt it are very close by, really defeating the purpose. Yep. Completely. Yeah, it's really more of just getting a warm fuzzy more than anything using the encryption option on S3. Unless you're storing the keys yourself. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Google Docs because this one is really, I can't live without Google Docs. I don't really use Office at all. I don't need a lot of the advanced features. I just need to be able to put some text down, some white background, nice and simple. Some bullet point lists, maybe, you know, I don't really do PowerPoints, maybe a little Excel spreadsheet or something. So Google Docs is perfect for me. Well, I don't want to store all my data up in Google. What other alternatives are there out there? And a quick look around yielded three that I found. One of them I have a decent amount of experience with, which is OneDrum.com. <clears throat> they have been uh, kind of in beta for a long time, for several years. We use this at one of the big clients that I do work for. 
and set it up where they had about 20 computers, all with Microsoft Office, and I was showing them how great it is that I can edit things with somebody else on a uh, on Google Docs and the power of being able to collaboratively <coughs> edit. And the thing that was a big problem for them is that they were writing these huge 100-page bids, but the problem was that they were having to do it serially. So they would have the lawyer come up, come up into the room and work on one part of this bid document, and then they would have to save it, and they'd have the other, this certain engineer come in and work on this other part of the document and do it all in serial like that. Or they would have to do it as separate documents and then merge it afterwards, and it's just... Either way, is a total pain. So we set up this one drum thing, which was a server just on the network there, and a plug-in inside, inside Word, and then they could collaboratively edit within the same Word doc at the same time, just like you do in Google Docs. It was, it's awesome. And OneDrum, they built it up to be really nice software, and then they got bought by Yammer. So I don't really know Yammer. what it takes nowadays. Like that's, I don't understand what it takes, because I know Yammer got bought up by Microsoft, so I have no idea where this one drum technology went, but if you can get your hands on a download of it, the plugins, it's really cool stuff, and it might solve your need there. But it's more for a local area network. The other the other thing that's out there is Etherpad. Etherpad is a Node.js uh, program, and it allows you to do collaborative editing inside basically like a text pad. It's kind of neat, but Google bought them recently, so I don't know how much more support's coming out for that. And then the final one that I found was Feng thingoffice.com and that one you do have to pay for it's not open source but they do have their on-site version of it that you can install yourself if you don't want to use their cloud offering and it seems like it was about the only thing I, out there that I could find that really allowed you to do document editing in a web browser based off of your own server so unfortunately there aren't many options out there that are self-hosted Really, there aren't any other than that Fang office, <clears throat> but if you're interested in it, check that out. And Ed, it looks like you have a comment to add to this. <laughs> I'm like, everybody's looking for this complex solution to storing a document online. It's like, it's called, you get a wiki and you run it on your server. And a lot of wikis have built-in WYSIWYG editors. Like, I use MoinMoin personally a lot, and it has a WYSIWYG editor, type all the stuff in there, it's on my own server, it's version-controlled. A wiki! But it can't ex it's not exporting to Office formats, right? Well, yes, it's called you put in a little plugin that does that. <laughs> what about... And there's a whole ton of them already there for it, so... It's see, like, do any of them, like MoinMoin, does it allow me to real-time edit, and you can see what I'm typing as I type it, and vice versa? That I don't know. I haven't ever had that, much need for that, useful. but it is kind of useful. That's that'd be something interesting to see if any of them have it out there. Like Etherpad does let you do that. You have to set which up is no closest to that concept right. anyway. Yeah. Okay. I know they do have the version. You know, you can backdate to yesterday with uh, Wikimedia. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, you can see all the versions, and it merges, oh. so you can both edit at the same time. This is a huge plus theoretically to merge it. cloud. That's actually one thing I forgot. The the whole remember the Google Wave buzz from a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, and that's actually now being taken over and maintained by the Apache Foundation, sort of in an incubation status. But so whenever that gets off the ground, that will be a nice alternative because it's already there and working and in very real time. Yes, Although that I was. I think a, it's more a messaging platform than a authoring platform. No, it was. This, you could do document authoring with it. That's why Google canned it because 
they just took what they wanted out of it, incorporated it in Google Docs, and said bye bye, yeah. and let uh, Open Source Foundation take it over. Interesting. All right, let's let's talk about image hosting. This is one that you can't you can't ignore. You know, everybody who wants to get off the cloud, you no doubt have lots of images that you want to be able to share with friends and family. What what alternatives to Flickr or Facebook are out there for you to be able to share these photos? I know what my friends I work with used to work with on Jerry. He um that's he's the first, that's the first guy I thought of by the way when I was writing this section because he yes. always likes to show his photos off and he's so proud that he hosts them on his own server with his <laughs> own like website thing his own yeah. gallery. He uses he uses WordPress and that server is sitting at his desk at the office uh, 500 feet away from where I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> And so he's using WordPress, huh? I thought he used, but he's using a plugin for WordPress. Well, you know, WordPress comes with a gallery plugin, so he may use a custom one, but yeah. It's pretty much I mean, just that. Okay. So he just uses that, and he has tons and tons of photos on that thing. Yeah, he yes. loves to take pictures of his vacations. And his guns. <laughs> and, photos yes. Photos of guns. It's a little scary. All right, he also, all right, here's another one that I found that looked interesting. It's called Zen Photo. It's the simpler media website cms and uh looks kind of nice looks kind of like Flickr, the overall aesthetic of it you can download it it's apparently open source yep gpl version 2 and this one if i was going to go the my the self-hosted route i probably would give this one some uh give it some attention and check it out because uh let's see here the way they themed the demo, it looks absolutely horrid. But the oh, it does. Yeah. The thing um, I wrote ten years ago in PHP to host my own photo album looks better than this. Yeah, I don't understand because the screenshots they have up in the header look awesome, and they have a themes section, and you can see the themes. Most of these themes are just downright terrible. Yeah, the website looks nice. Then you go to the demo, and it's like, oh, where did it go? Yes. <laughs> Well, they do have one that's actually flickered. It's basically like a Flickr style clone. Even the logo gallery looks very much like the Flickr logo. I think it still falls pretty fall pretty far short of Flickr, but it's not bad. It probably gets the job done. And the other one I found was Gallery over let's see here. On it's called Gallery over on Minolto. Yeah. Version three. You can download that 1.8 megabytes they both of these are php and they have an iphone app for gallery as well third-party one so that's pretty cool too but there you go with some options for hosting your photos self-hosted <coughs> i've actually got two that i've <clears throat> used i don't know okay. if you guys ever heard of i don't know if this is right imager that's how i always say it yeah you mm -hmm. are yep it's really quick you just you can grab eight pictures, drag them into the browser if you're using an up-to-date browser, and they will upload and... Uh... But they're hosting them, right? Yes. Okay, so they do have your data at that point. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's all theirs. You can either, it's either just, you know, free, but it's theirs and everyone's to see, or you can sign up. Right. As well as a very, very similar... What is that one? Minus. Minus. Upload and share your photos. It's the exact same thing with slightly different rules. Okay. As far as, like, um, the thing about Imager is that it strips all of the metadata out of the image, no question, hmm. which is kind of nice, but not so much. And then I think this minus one, 
It'll keep looks... geolocation and rotation and all that data in there. I think it looks for uh, copyright information before it. Oh, okay. Uh, Interesting. Allows you something like that. A little more legal, perhaps. All right. Let's talk. We're almost through our list of topics here, but we have one very important one, and I think it's growing in importance, so I really want to make sure we mention it. And that is Google Voice, or basically voice over IP options. So if you don't want to use Google Voice and have your transcribed voicemails stored in their data centers, you could use some of these other offerings. And one of them is Twilio has one called OpenVBX. Had you seen this before, Ed? Uh, let me go look at it because it's probably yeah. just a rebrand of something I've already looked at before. It's pretty nice, and it actually does do transcription of voicemails. <clears> hmm. <throat> So, I was uh, kind of impressed with that, but I think I think this is something that's going to grow in importance because I think a lot of people right now are still they're still happily using their minutes plan and their regular voice plan on their cell phone carrier, but more and more we're going to move away from that and move more into you know having really voice over IP, but even have you know transcribed voicemails and everything else. But it is a pain in the butt to set one up. Really? Because I actually ran my own asterisk box for a while at my house. I remember that. You had the SIP, SIP going on there and everything. You had phones in yeah, your house. Yeah, so I, I had my SIPphone.com stuff back when they were around before they got <laughs> bought by Google. And I actually have some of those full hardware devices. They're unlocked devices, and I use them. Um, right now, one was just hooked up to my broad voice. Uh, phone, which is actually tied to a real, real number that people can call me on. And, you know, I was using free world dial up before it went belly up. And <laughs> a lot of little hosting things that did zip trunks like that or free, which just sort of died. Yeah. Um, but running your own asterisk server is a pain in the rear end because asterisk is really heinous to work with. And there's some other alternatives, but they're kind of somewhat better, but not much better. And it's not a friendly thing to work with. And so I sort of gave up on it and like, eh, I'll just hook it directly up to Broad Voice and use that one number because all the other ones died anyway. <clears throat> so How about PBX in a flash? Have you ever heard of that or looked at it? It's yeah. another one of those packaged right. Right. things like Trickbox. <clears throat> yeah, I, yeah. I uh, use this one just to kind of make some things work with Google Voice, like uh, I don't know, routing your phone number. I'm not really sure of all the terminology, but... I did like some things. You could have your own on-hold music, which was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I had too much fun with that. I actually had it so that when people called my asterisk box at home, instead of getting the ring back you usually hear when you call someone, it would start playing monkeys. <laughs> Do you, I don't know if you guys remember, but there is a, a short fad in the cell phone industry where you could actually buy ringback tones. Oh, Yes. Is it? Still, people still do it, man. It anymore. But I, I actually did buy one of those. My wife, then girlfriend, did buy one, so we, we were suckered into that. We, we paid like two bucks to have the Purdue marching band theme or whatever play when you called our phones. Yeah. I can't believe. So sad. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. It's so confusing to people the first time they call you, and they're like, "What?" Or the worst is if it's like a business call or something, you just feel like a total idiot when you are listening to the voicemail. On speakerphone voice in yeah. a conference. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, let's uh, let's move on and talk about full backup solutions. If you want to back up your entire hard drive, how can you do that easily and still control all of your data? We have some other options that are where you kind of do cede some control. 
which are Backblaze and Carbonite. Both of those you're going to upload to their servers. Uh, Backblaze is one I've looked at, and price-wise, it seems very reasonable. So if you're okay with uploading all of your data to somebody else's servers, then check out Backblaze or Carbonite. But if you want to do it a different way, <clears throat> Ed, how would you do that? <laughs> well, I, my dad uses rsync.net. And, you know, the, the price for that is pretty low per gigabyte of data stored. And you said it's encrypted. So it's uploading everything well, to their servers, but it, fully encrypted. Depending they on how you they, yeah, they, they actually have a piece of software they, you know, relabel called Super Flexible Backup, which will do your backup of your Windows, your Linux, your Mac machines, whatever else. And you could have it encrypt the stuff locally before it sends it up there, and they don't know about the keys. And they encourage you to do that. And they also have some other services to geolocate it stuff so they'll actually back it up to remote locations around the world as well wow. and they have lots of very open stuff about hey and if they come government comes after us saying they want your data well we can just say hey it's encrypted we can't give it to you <clears throat> so it's it's a very interesting company and when you email them you're emailing not a tier one you're emailing the people that actually are right there to be able to fix your problem and help you with it so that's awesome Yes, and then of course my one I just added on there. Yes, an alternative to doing backups is you use an external backup device, and then you use Shoe Leather Express oh. to take it to someone else's house. <laughs> but I like it. So you could use like Time Machine or any of the Windows solutions out there to do some local backup, and then carry it. To, I don't really like the Shoe Leather Express concept, but local backup seems like another good option, as well as doing something like rsync.net. Yeah. And then security. How do you keep all of this secure? You mentioned before that you had a problem at one point where somebody wasn't using a very secure password. Spammers got in there, started sending spam from their email account. So security yep. is a big concern if you're going to manage this yeah. yourself. It's something hey. you're getting for free when you use the big boys. So how do you, how do, you do security well? Yeah. yeah. And well, another case I had a couple of years ago, one of the PHP applications on my server actually had a backdoor in it, hole in it. Was that a bulletin board system? Uh, it actually was not a bulletin board system. Oh, it was man. a bug tracking system. Oh, I was wow. surprised. But it was been in PHP, was so. Um, Which one was but it? Yeah, uh, it was Mantis, Mantis, older version. I just never got into updating it, so I'm like, dang it. But so it's a little tiny rootkit got installed in my box. But okay, cleaned it up easily enough. And then after that, I turned on SE Linux on my Linux server, because I'm running CentOS as my servers. And haven't had an issue since, because if I had C-Linux enabled to, to begin with, I never would have been affected, because C-Linux would have stopped that thing before it got anywhere. Gotcha. So that's one thing, is if you have C-Linux, that thing will isolate stuff so that the web server can only do what the web server is supposed to do and nothing else. So there's no way it can go through and install a little IRC bot that connects out to an IRC network and becomes your a victim of you know, a bot network. It can't do it because it can't connect out, it can't install anything, and it can't run anything either. And then disabling password login on SSH is another tip. Yes. Yes, never, ever, ever, ever allows direct password logins from a remote server on your SSH connection. Because then they can just try to brute force in. Well, and, and that's what people do. I, mean, I can sit there and watch my server, and I can every now and then you'll see hundreds of connections coming in every second of people trying random accounts and passwords to hack into my SSH server. 
I'm just sitting there like, well, you can't do anything because you can't log in with a password. So I actually started enacting little rules on my SSH port to say, if you connect more than four times in one minute, then I just start dropping everything from your IP. Nice. So you do SSH keys then? Only SSH keys, yep. Excellent. What do you use to, to stop people from, or to drop the IPs? Uh, just a fire, two firewalls and IP tables. So IP tables. That's right it. Right now, I'm pretty sure I've got SSH open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. password protected, but yeah. open to brute force attack. Right. And so, so my way, because I still ended up having it on a couple of my domains, is I changed my port number. Yes. I would still I mean, yeah, obviously, turn off yeah, it's still, still not secure, but it makes me feel better at night. Yeah, yeah I, I do actually two things. I turn off password login and turn off root login. <laughs> That's a good tip, too. So you cannot, even if you have the keys, you cannot come in as root. Correct. Nice. All right. Well, with that, let's jump into our three Talentopoly links for this episode. The first one is changing times for web developers. Six tips you should read to survive. Let me get to our article here. I've got so many tabs open. Killing me. And this one talks about here are the things as a web developer that you really need to know nowadays. Number one, learn to write better JavaScript and CSS. Learn the good parts about JavaScript. Venture into advanced JavaScript jQuery, all right, you know this, don't you? Require JS, a JavaScript file and module loader, underscore JS, modernizer, history JS. If you don't know what all those things are, this guy's saying you really need to go out there and school yourself on that. Number two, familiarize yourself with a responsive framework. So check out Responsive Web Design by Ethan Marcotte. Comparison of responsive CSS frameworks, there's a nice link in there for that. Twitter Bootstrap and Zurb Foundation are the two personal choices of the author that he recommends. Number three, learn the most useful JavaScript MVC frameworks. So Backbone, Spine, Ember, even UE. Check those things out. Learn them. Start using them. Number four, understand REST and HTTP. WOA is here to stay. I actually don't know what WOA is. Can anybody enlighten me on what WOA is? Web-oriented architecture. And that means? Here to stay and why Microsoft knew that. Yeah, it basically, that's... Web-oriented, basically what your architecture of your applications is, you get data from the web. Okay. <laughs> it's buzzword for your application uses the internet to get its data. <laughs> All right. And then we have REST in practice, hypermedia in forms. And number five is understand HTML5 beyond the buzzword. Number six, <laughs> optimize. So check out Google Chrome, Speed Tracer, and Wiseslow. It's not a terrible list. I think it's you know not exactly the list I would write, but it's not a terrible list, and it's all things you should probably know. I mean, you don't need to know every single one of these frameworks, but in general, be familiar with this type of stuff because I think what I took away from this is that JavaScript is growing in prominence, and just seeing the size of the local IndieJS chapter here and the number of people that like to talk about JavaScript nowadays really seems like JavaScript is coming into its own and, and very popular nowadays. And I Hell think a yeah. lot more people are doing it. So if there's nothing else you take away from this article, it's that if you don't know JavaScript or you're not spending maybe 10, 20% of your time in JavaScript, 
you probably should up that amount and start to becoming more proficient in it. Anyway, let's move to link number two. Workless gem, dynamically scale your Heroku dinos. Nice little gem that will notice when you need to run workers and then spin them up in the using delayed jobs queue, it will spin them up on Heroku, and when your queue is at zero, it will spin them down, saving you money on Heroku. That's the whole gist of what this gem does, but the fact that it can save you money and do this dynamically is pretty neat. So if you if you don't have queues that are always above zero, if your queues oftentimes are idle, you should probably check this out and save a few bucks. So something that I would probably personally look into for some projects. All right, and our last link, number three, your team should work like an open source project. And this is a article from GitHub's founder, or one of the first developers at GitHub, I'm not exactly sure if he's founder or not, Ryan Tomeko, maybe? I don't know. If anybody else has a better, better uh, idea of pronunciation on that, go for it. But he's talking about, it's quite a lengthy article, but it's based on a, uh, they have a video in there too, a 43 minute video, but it, it covers quite a bit of things, but he he talks about some stuff that stood out to me, like natural survivability of process. And this, I know that GitHub really likes to run themselves as a peer-based structure. So there's not really commandments coming down from the powers that be telling you this is how you shall do things. This is what you shall work on. It's more of a bottom-up approach. And they like that because it really leads to Darwinism. And hopefully the good ideas, the good projects, the good features, the good processes will develop from the bottom going up and become mainstays within the corporation if they're good enough to survive. Which is that's pretty neat and that's great if you have the type of workforce that can can do that and is talented enough to develop those things on their own and cares enough. Adopting open source process constraints. This one is really about uh, taking straight from their product development documentation which is internal guide on their software development process. It's kind of, uh, I know Brandon is hitting the snooze alert right about now. As we're <laughs> this. I won't bore everybody with the details, but uh, if you're interested in knowing really at a detailed level what the GitHub's thoughts are, I know they've published a lot in the past, and I've even sat through a lecture before with GitHub talking about how they like to work. <laughs> and I think this actually had more details in it than a lot of the other stuff that I've been exposed to from them. Uh, it's, it's good stuff, and if you're really interested in figuring out corporate culture and how you can structure it, check out this article. And with that, I will thank all of you guys for being on this episode of the podcast. It was enjoyable as always, and until next time, keep hacking. <laughs>